Dear Lord, make me a nail upon the wall, fasten securely in its place. Then from this thing so common and so small, hang a bright picture of thy face. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. At this hour, we want to share with you what the worship of Jesus Christ in a practical way really does to the human heart. You know, it's one thing to enter upon a theory of worship. It's another thing to understand the, the practicality of making Jesus Christ the center of our worship, the center of our affections, the center of our love. There's healing in his wings, the Bible says. It says he sent his word and healed them, Psalm 107.20. And that 107th Psalm repeats again and again words like this, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. My friends, we don't worship Jesus Christ merely because he's bigger than we are. We worship him because we love him. Amen? Amen? Our hearts go out because of his goodness, his wonderful works to the children of men. Has he been good to you? How many agree? Let's see your hands. He has long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. This is our Savior. This is the wonderful maker of humanity. I like to repeat again and again, it's not just because he's bigger than we are. It's not just his almightiness. It is his loveliness. It is his beauty. It's his goodness. It's his mercy. It's his healing. It's his salvation. It is his eternal life. Several years ago, we're holding a series of meetings out in the Middle West. And uh, a man who I'd never met before came up and handed me a book, and he introduced himself. And he said, I'd like to give you this book because it fits the very type of, of message that you're sharing with people. And the book was entitled, Prayer Can Change Your Life. I thought, well, isn't that wonderful? How in the world did the Lord impress this man to bring me a book on the very topic that I'm sharing across America and other lands? I'd like to look and see to what extent the author of this book believes that prayer can change one's life. As I began to read it, it made some real promises. It made very clear that prayer, when it's properly entered into, can really change a person's life. And I became so obsessed with this thought that I decided that, that I just wouldn't swallow it wholesale. I would compare it with God's Word from first to last and with the writings of my favorite author who's taught me more about prayer than all other authors combined. So I took the Bible, and I took the writings of my favorite author, and I checked and double-checked all the way through this book. I imagine I had a stack of quotations from the Bible and from my own teacher, a great, huge stack of quotations. And I found when I got through the book that these, these statements in that book, this can change your life, prayer can change your life, were almost entirely biblical from first to last. There were just a few minor mistakes, but all the rest was biblical. And it went on and it showed how that three groups of individuals had worked on a program with their problems. There were 15 in each group. One group decided that they didn't know any answers to prayer. They didn't know how to solve their problems. In fact, 
they didn't even, many of them didn't even profess Christianity at all. But they said, we do have problems, but we have no idea how to solve our problems. That's 15. They were carefully selected. Another group of 15 said, uh, we have a lot of problems, and the only way we know by which the problems can be solved is psychiatry. The third group said, we have been taught to pray from the time we're children, and we believe that if we will really go into orbit around prayer, this will solve our problems. We've just neglected prayer. So there were the three groups. They decided that they would take nine months on this experiment. During this experimental period of time, those who believed in psychiatry would go to a psychiatrist once or twice a week. Those who believed in prayer agreed that they would pray every day for the nine months from one to two hours. For they believed with all their heart, they explained it, and they, they gave voice to it again and again. They believed this would solve their problems, so they agreed to this. The third group, group who said they had no idea how their problems could be solved, but they said, we're from Missouri. <laughs> you show us and we'll accept it. So he put them into a little group therapy class, if you please, for the nine months, and they met, I think, twice a week. At the end of this period of time of nine months, the people who had prayed for one to two hours every day and every day and every day, what kind of, what kind of success do you suppose they had? If you've never read it, you can guess. If you have read it, don't guess because you wouldn't be guessing. We want you to guess. I'll tell you what I guessed. What would you guess that people who prayed from one to two hours a day, every day for nine months, what would you guess as to the success of their efforts? 90%? About 90. All right, good, you're on my side. That's about what I agreed. Uh, maybe, some have said, I believe 95%. Is that what your smile is saying? About 95%? A few have said, I think about 80%. There have been a very few who have said, I believe 100%. The result at the end of the nine months wasn't 100%. It wasn't 90. It wasn't 80. It was goose egg. It was zero. The reason that the success was zero, no success whatsoever, was this. During that period of prayer, for the nine months, as they prayed, they went into solution, they went into orbit around problems instead of solutions. The man that had a temper, you know, he would pray something like this, Dear Lord, you know I have a temper. And, and I've had this temper for quite a while, Lord. What's he talking about? Temper. What's he thinking about? Temper. What's he praying about? Temper. But dear Lord, you know, my father had a temper too. What's he talking about? His father's temper. And my mother, you know, Lord, she belonged to that nationality that is very tempestuous. And my grandfather was the same way. I've come by it rightly, Lord. I have had a temper. My mother had a temper. My father had a temper, dear Lord. And my grandfather had a temper. My grandmother had a temper. My great... What are they talking about? Temper, 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 temper. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 was fulfilled in their cases. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, By beholding, we're changed in the same image. The more this man talked to God in prayer about his temper, the more tempestuous he was. He was mean to his wife the first day, but about the third day he kept, kicked the cat beside. And about the seventh day he whacked the dog. 
And you can imagine what he was by the end of nine months. Not one of those individuals who had prayed from one to two hours a day for the nine months straight, not one of them showed any improvement whatsoever. I tell you, my friends, doesn't that tell you something? But the individuals who went to a psychiatrist had made over 60% improvement because a psychiatrist talked about solutions. My friends, isn't it a shame in the name of Christianity that a psychiatrist who doesn't even profess Jesus Christ or the religion of God should surpass professed Christians? I say it's a shame to us. What do you say? Even they had 60% or better success. But the group that didn't know what to do, they made between 70 and 80% improvement. And when I read that introduction, I said, I'm determined I'm going to find out why and on what basis did these people who, uh, who didn't profess to know anything about how to find solutions, how did they have such, make such tremendous improvement? And this is why I took all the time I could take for three months straight researching this, every, every phase of every principle. And you know, I found it was very simple. These people in this group therapy class, they, uh, science as such only came in twice, at the beginning of the nine months and at the end. They went through four special scientific tests at the beginning to probe the, at the beginning to probe the subconscious mind. And you know what they, what they found the subconscious mind, the four obsessions of the subconscious mind are, of the, of the fallen man, they found they were exactly the same as Genesis 3 points out. And they didn't know Genesis 3 pointed it out. When Adam sinned, he was filled with guilt. And the guilt bred fear. And the fear gave him hatred and inferiority. You'll find it there. The Lord said, why did you hide yourself? I was naked in inferiority. God said, you're naked because you're guilty. Yes, but he said, I hate you and my wife both. You made my wife and she made me sin. And man's been blaming his wife ever since. Inferiority, guilt, fear. And when those individuals, they'd put in an envelope from meeting to meeting through the nine months, just one statement he'd draw out as to, this individual, you have fear, or you have guilt, or you have hatred. The moment that one of those individuals who found that he did have hatred accepted it, he was taught to do this. Listen to this, friends. He was taught, then do not talk about hatred anymore. Do not go into orbit around hatred anymore. Go into orbit for the next week around the opposite of hatred, namely the love of Jesus Christ. And by beholding him for the nine months, the opposite of everything that was found in their lives, they had made between 70 and 80% improvement in nine months. You know, my friends, God's laws apply to all humanity. Did you know an infidel can use the law of gravity just as well as a Christian? And did you know that if a Christian disobeys the law of gravity and the infidel accepts it, they're both, we'll say, on the roof of a house. And the Christian says, I love the Lord. Thank you. I love the Lord, so I'm going to ignore the law of gravity. And he jumps off the rooftop and breaks his neck. And the infidel says, I'm going to obey the law of gravity. He stays on the rooftop, comes down the ladder and safe.
anyone, no matter who he is, who determines by all that's within him to obey the simple laws of Jehovah, the laws of our Creator, will find results. But the Christian above all should take them because we can say it is God that works in me, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I said, Lord, this is the thing that we've been taught all our lives. My favorite author's writings are packed full of this. You look to Jesus and you'll be like him. It's all through the sacred writings. This holy book says, look unto me and you will be saved. Whoever you are, whatever your background, as you look to me, as you focus your love and your thinking and your praying and your praying and your worship on me and my lovelessness and my character, you will be like me. That's the Bible. Amen? The next series of meetings I was to conduct, my wife and I were to conduct, was in Arizona. I was so thrilled to think that I had scientific proof now of what the Bible had been saying all along. I wrote a letter ahead to the churches and I said, we have something that our people need. What we need to do, brethren, friends, neighbors, is to believe what we profess to believe, and that is to let our life be Christ-centered. We need as Christians across America to stop picking at the faults of each other. We need to cease this devilish gossip that so many millions of Christians are engaging in. My friends, ask God to deliver us from it and to keep us focusing on Jesus. What do you say? Amen. We finished a series of meetings down in Arizona in the Phoenix area. Then we held another series, finally another series, and the first Friday night of another series, a lady came to us right after the meeting. She said, I want to see you. May I see you? Fortunately, we had two hours. We don't usually give people that time, but I felt greatly impressed. My wife and I stepped in the side room, and this is a story she shared with us. She said, I was reared in a professed Christian home. She said, my father was long on doctrine, but he was short on love. How about that? You see, he didn't know that love is God, and God is love, and God is the greatest of all doctrine. So he had substitute good doctrines in place of the real center of it all. And she said, he used to whip me cruelly. He'd whip me with leather lashes embedded with metal. She said, I hated the very ground he walked on. I decided as soon as I was old enough, I would leave home. And she said, I did, and I married. And I married before I got acquainted with the man, or the man who got acquainted with me. And she said, my life was so empty. My husband and I got along like cats and dogs. But my life was empty without Jesus. I didn't know his love. She didn't say it all that way. That was our analysis. We saw it very clearly. The heart that doesn't have the love of Jesus Christ, the heart that doesn't know that God loves, is an empty heart. And she said, as though I was married, I was sort of out of the frying pan in the fires, they say. And she said, I felt so empty that I was reaching out in all directions for love. And she said, unfortunately, among the things that I did, I would select some fine-looking man in the church, and I'd make over him and cause him to fall. Then I was sorry and asked God to forgive me, and then I selected another. I'd make over him until I had hypnotized him and I called him to, caused him to fall. She said, I did that for years. My husband somehow stuck by me. She said, and then I, in the meantime, I became a registered nurse. I had access to the, to the doctor's cabinet, I took certain drugs, and then she said, in trying to find some relief and some 
tranquility. <laughs> That's what tranquilizers are supposed to do. But Jesus brings tranquility. She said, and then a, a so-called so cured alcoholic told me about a special drug that he said, this'll do it. She said, I took it, and then she said, I, I began to have something that was just like delirium tremens. Anytime I'd close my eyes, I would see a nest of snakes over here and one of the vipers coming toward me. Or a nest of, uh, uh, a swarm of bees, and there they were coming in my direction. I'd cry out. She said, I came to a place where I could not close my eyes at any time without something horrible coming in my direction. She said, it's absolutely awful. She said, Pastor Kuhn, I've gone to different doctors. In fact, she said, I was just released from the hospital today as incurable. But she said, I've heard that the Lord is blessing your services and your ministry, and I've come to ask you, is there anything you can do to help me? I said, yes, there is. I said, now we want to give you the background. We want to diagnose. We want the Lord, who is the great physician, the maker of humanity, we're going to take his diagnosis and accept it, and then we'll find his cure. I said, his diagnosis of your disease is the same diagnosis of the disease of all of us, except yours is greatly exaggerated because of circumstances. I said, here it is. In Isaiah, the 14th chapter, verses 12 to 14, it tells us how this awful obsession came into the universe, how sin and suffering and death came. It's very clear. Here it says in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nation? For thou hast said in thine heart, what? I, 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 I. I said, Lucifer had before that gone into orbit around the center of life, Jesus Christ. The center of joy, Jesus Christ. The center of worship, Jesus Christ. The center of happiness, Jesus Christ. Now he formed a new orbit, unknown to him, and he made himself the center of the orbit. So Lucifer said, I, 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 and Lucifer is here like my fist here. Here's Lucifer in the center of his orbit. Lucifer now comes out and goes into orbit around Lucifer. I said, you know what that is, don't you? Here's Lucifer in the center. Here's Lucifer in the circumference. You know what you call that? Lucifer was beside himself. Lucifer, when he got out of the true orbit of Christ-centeredness, was frustrated. And I said, you'll read it in the writings of my favorite author. He did not know where he was going. He'd never gone there before. He was frustrated and confused. And he confused a third of the angels of glory. Then I said, you'll find in Genesis 3, where he stepped in the Garden of Eden, and he sold the same philosophy of self-centeredness. Instead of Christ-centeredness, he sold that to Adam and Eve. He said, if you partake of the tree that God has told you not to, you will be as what? You'll be as God. You will be the center. My friends, you can't find any place in God's holy word where there's life in the humanity, the human being, the creature being the center. The creature is not the center of life. Amen? Amen. The creature is not the center of salvation. The creature is not the center of eternal life. Adam and Eve accepted that false philosophy. I said, and, and I said, I'll show you what happened. There are four obsessions 
that came into their fallen nature. Adam was full of guilt. He was full of fear. He hid himself in inferiority and he expressed his hatred. And those are the four obsessions of the fallen nature of humanity. I said, Mary, we call her Mary Magdalene, modern Mary Magdalene RN because she was a registered nurse. I said, when your dad, notice now how this is what happened to you. When your dad whipped you with these leather lashes embedded with metal, how did you feel? She said, I hated him. When you hated him, what reaction did that have on you? She said, I felt terribly guilty. There's hatred and guilt. As this hatred and guilt filled your soul, how did you feel? Did you feel perfectly normal? No, she said, I felt awfully inferior. And she said, I'll just make up for my inferiority by just shoving my weight around. So you had fear, you had guilt, you had inferiority, and you had hate. I said, you have the same thing, and I read from God's immutable word where these four things are the characteristics of Laodicea, the last religion of the world. Revelation 3. Genesis 3 gives the beginning. Revelation 3, the close. They're there. I said, now for the cure. Since it all started by, by the creature forming his own center and going out of center around his creator, how would, what's the remedy? Here it is. Here it is, Mary. Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and you will be saved. And, and she was taking notes vigorously, just very enthusiastically. And I said, now we're going to share with you the cure. She said, Rx. She felt like, like Nebuchadnezzar must have felt when Daniel told him what he was dreaming. He felt if the man could give him his dream, he could give him the answer. And she just believed it with all her heart. I said, here it is. It's right from God's word. God's immutable, eternal, impeccable, never failing book. Here it is. I said, now, then you need to have God's love. If you can have God's love fill your heart, then that'll take care of the hatred. She said, yes, but how? I said, we'll share it in a moment. Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God is shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Oh, good, she said, but how is it shed abroad? I said, it is shed abroad, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, by looking to Jesus. And well, when he sheds his love in the heart, this takes care of fear. For 1 John 4, 17, 18 says, perfect love casts out fear. So that'll take care of your hatred and your fear. And as you go to orbit around his forgiving love, that takes care of guilt. Romans 5, 8 and 10. When we're enemies and sinners, he loved us. 1 John 1, 9, he'll forgive us all our sins. Isaiah 1, 18, though the sins are scarlet, that's his forgiving love. And I said, then you have love in, in place of hatred. You have forgiveness in place of guilt. You have perfect composure in place of fear. And then 1 John 3, 1 to 3 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. We should be called the children of God. You're a princess in Jesus Christ. No princess needs to have any inferiority. She said, yes, but how? I said, this is how. You'll go home tonight. 
Thank you. And, and you'll go home tonight and you will let, you'll look to him, 2 Corinthians 3.18. You'll go through every, you'll take, say, five illustrations, examples of Christ's love for unworthy people. Like Mary Magdalene, you'll reconstruct her life. And how she contacted Christ and was healed. Peter, who fell. Saul, who fell. David in the Old Testament. And Manasseh. We took quite a bit of time on it. Each time as you study these men and you realize how God's love flooding their souls took care of all of this other, you'll say, Lord, I ask you that this will happen to me. I believe you love me, Lord. Thank you, you are forgiving me, Lord. Thank you, you're filling my heart with love, Lord, because you promised it. She came every night for eight nights. At the end of the eighth night, and by the way, she was practicing it. At the end of the eighth night, she said, Pastor Kuhn, I can close my eyes now and I see nothing but pictures of Jesus. The cure had taken place. My friends, if eight nights with her would bring her into a peaceful relationship to Jesus Christ, what can happen to you and me if we really worship him and look to Jesus Christ and are changed? Oh God, save us from looking at the faults of others. What do you say? Shall we pray? Dear Lord in heaven, we thank you for forgiving us, for letting the devil absorb us with the faults and the weaknesses and the hypocrisies even of others. Oh, Father, we pray that beginning tonight in a way as never before, every one of us here in divine presence, those viewing this program, may go into orbit around the blessed love of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, and dear Lord, the wonderful acceptance of us as your sons and daughters till the fear and the hatred, the remorse, the guilt, the inferiority will pass away and we can know whom we have believed, know we're forgiven and cleansed, know we have the free gift of eternal life. We're on our way to glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And now for your questions and answers. But first shall we seek the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord in heaven, you've promised in your word, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, that our wisdom consists of learning your ways as revealed in your word. We ask you to give us wisdom to interpret rightly thy word as it relates to our own individual problems. We believe you're hearing, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And now for the first question. Yes, I have been wondering for a long time the scriptures say that God's church is to be made up of peculiar people, a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. If this above is true, should we not come to God's house dressed entirely differently than if we were in common street garb? Should not our appearance at church, in church, be worthy of our calling? That's an excellent question. And generally speaking, yes. However, you will want to put this text down in your notebook. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This makes very clear that not everyone has grown to the same height that others have grown. 
we have found many individuals in our travels who have not grown in grace to the extent that they come into the house of God with the same type of garment that someone else has. If we were to reject these people or to be cold to these people just because they don't know the Lord in the way we do, we would be counterproductive in our very missionary endeavor, do you see? Aren't you glad that God's grace has compassed the earth? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's appeared to all men. So we would strongly urge all professed Christians who realize the high standards of the Lord to also realize that the highest standard of the Lord, you know what it is? You know what the very highest standard of the Lord is? Years ago, as I was reading from Matthew 5, 44 to 47, I noticed it concluded by saying, Be ye therefore perfect. And I've heard a lot said about being perfect. And then one day I came across a parallel statement in the book of Luke, which says, Be ye therefore merciful. So perfection in God's sight is demonstrated to the degree of mercy that we extend to other individuals whom we feel have not grown in grace to the same extent that we have. Aren't you glad God's mercy is extended to us? We surely haven't grown in grace as the Lord has. We haven't grown up to the full stature of Jesus Christ, see? So God's grace extended to us meets us exactly where we are. How in the world can the gospel go to individuals if they're even afraid to come into the sanctuary where God's uh, perfected people are, you see? So if I see an individual that looks like a hippie in God's church, praise the Lord he's in church instead of some other place. What do you say? Amen? Amen. 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 And praise the Lord that the highest form of Christianity in my part is to accept him just as he is. Why? Because this represents the Lord. The Lord accepts us. He loves us. He loves us before we have changed at all. Romans 5, 8 to 10 says, while we're still enemies, while we're still sinners, he died for us. If we give anyone the impression that God does not love him until he shapes up, we have completely misrepresented the love of God, right? Completely misrepresent the love of God. The love of God flows out. Matthew 5, 44 begins this way. I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Now, if I would love my enemies, I certainly should love somebody who hasn't yet learned just how to come to church as I feel that he should come, you see. I have seen and heard of many individuals who've been turned off of Christ because some perfect, quote, unperfect, quote, unquote, some perfect Christian has thought that Christianity consisted of my straightening him up. Some of them come into our churches smelly. Praise the Lord, they're in church. Thank the Lord, their hearts are open. Oh, may they see in us a love, a mercy, a compassion, such as Jesus had, do you see? Amen. Thank you so much. Since God says he is no respecter of persons, why is it that in ancient times the gospel was only taught to literal Israel? We thank you for that very sincere question. But actually, it's just the opposite. In the olden days, the very purpose of the call of Abraham was 
as found in Genesis, the 12th chapter, that in thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The whole program of God for his people was that they would be the light of the world. It was not that they would erect barriers and walls between them and other nations. If you, for instance, uh, let us take this example of Solomon. When Solomon walked closely to the Lord, do you know kings from all over the then known world came to hear his wisdom as he extolled and magnified the Lord? This is why we read such statements as uh, the one found in Isaiah 56, 2. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and his hand from doing any evil. And then on down through the sixth verse. And to the stranger who takes hold of my law, I'll bring him into my house, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So God never intended that a few people would hedge themselves up as the Jewish nation did. They were to have been the light of the world, but they so completely failed, you see, that many people have completely un misunderstood their calling. Next question. How do you know what God's will is in making decisions perhaps that will change your life, such as in choosing a mate? Well, perhaps it would help you if I shared with you a little of my own experience, and then I'll build on the Word of God. The first young lady to whom I was engaged, but not married, I chose. After we were engaged, we learned that our minds didn't uh, agree spiritually. And so we broke the engagement. I was brokenhearted, and so was she. But in the interest of harmony versus a marriage that was disunited, we broke the engagement. The second girl to whom I was engaged, my brother chose. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Being my eldest brother, I knew he had good judgment. <laughs> and so she and I, after a period of time, were engaged. As we were preparing, as I thought, for marriage, uh, she wrote me a letter one day, and she said, uh, I know I'm a member of the church, and, and I'm an officer in the church, but I'm not at all interested in religion. So that engagement was broken. Can you imagine a young minister marrying someone who wasn't at all interested in religion? Well, having been engaged twice and having had my heart broken twice, I did what I should have done in the first place. I went to the Lord in prayer, and it seems like I must have spent a half an hour at a time in prayer on my knees, Lord, you guide me this time. You choose the one that you have for me this time. I chose, and I messed it up. My brother chose, and he messed it up. Now, Lord, you choose, and it'll not be messed up. An example of how we can ask God for his guidance is that of George Mueller, that great man of prayer, who had as many as 2,000 orphans that he was caring for at one time. He had, I think, as many as 189 missionaries, foreign missionaries, thousands of pieces of literature he passed out. When he was faced with a situation, with a decision, he said that he would fall on his knees before the Lord, before the open Bible. He said there was something about it as he would bow before God with the Bible open. There was something about it that impressed him with the sacredness, I believe it was, of this decision. And he said, I would pray day after day until I had 
no will of my own. I never expected God to reveal his will to me until I came to a place where I could say, Lord, I have no will of my own. He said, then the Lord would come through and reveal to me the next step to take. If all of us always did this, we'd find that the Lord would come to our rescue. Psalm 27, verse 9. The meek will he guide in judgment. The meek will he teach his way. So as we come to the place where we say, Lord, according to James 1, 5, you've said, if any of you lack wisdom, Lord, I lack wisdom. I don't understand what steps to take, but you promised me wisdom. Then it would be as though the Lord were saying to us in Deuteronomy 4, 6, the commandments, the rules of marriage, which I've already presented in my word, this is your wisdom. My wife and I have discovered 45 Bible laws applicable to marriage. They're all in this encyclopedia. Let me share just two or three as you're anticipating a life companion. Number one, Amos 3.3. 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? So one of the first things in the general friendship before it has developed into engagement should be to what extent are we agreed religiously, financially, physically, educationally, socially? Are we in agreement? And all the while waiting on the Lord and saying, Lord, reveal to us to what extent we're in agreement. It doesn't mean that the other person is bad and I am good. It means, are we in agreement? Can two walk together except they be agreed, you see? And let us not take too much for granted, thinking that after we're married, we can then reform the mate. Ah, that's a bad deal. Let us never try to reform our mates. Let us rather ask God to make us what we should be, worthy of the best of mates, you see, and he'll come to our rescue. The w next questioner writes, my wife, is a member of another Protestant church. I am a Jew who has become a Christian Seventh-day Adventist. I am so enthused, enthralled with the truths that I am learning that I have run over my wife's beliefs. When I finally realized what I had done, I found that I had turned my wife off so completely that I cannot get her to even discuss our beliefs. What can I do? Number one, James 5.16. Confess your faults one to another. You can just ask the Lord to help you. Don't preach at her as you confess. You see, some people will confess their faults something like this. I'm sorry I did this, but you know, I felt it was needful. Or I'm sorry I did this, but because of your attitude I did it. If there's any reason why I should have done it, there's no reason for confession. When we apologize, when we confess our faults, we're to confess them as though we were the chief offender. You might say something like this, Honey, do you know I'm awfully sorry? The way I've run over you and tried to be conscious for you, will you forgive me? And by the Lord's grace, I will never try to instruct you or to be conscious for you again. Then let, as you pray day by day, let the Holy Spirit in you prove to her that you're not now trying to get into discussion because she can see through it, oh, he's just apologizing, so now, now we can discuss. <laughs> Having apologized, let's not be, go back into the same program. 
let's let up completely for air and then do what Jesus did. Jesus, through his ministry, met unbelievers, follow me carefully, he met unbelievers at their conscious, their conscious need, not his conscious need for them, but their conscious need. For instance, a blind man. Did Jesus start preaching at him? No. He met this man at his conscious need. For what reason? So that the blind man would see in Jesus what God is all about. God is love. God is interested in us no matter how sinful we are, no matter how much we've blown it, you see. So this is the attitude we're to take toward others. Uh, soul winning, friends, think of soul winning as, as 95% spiritual courtship and 5% instruction, which means we love him because he first loved us, not because he taught us, 1 John 4, 19. A lot of people have that completely twisted around. They've got an impression that to be a Christian witness, we must be teaching, 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 teaching. No. To be a Christian witness, we must be loving, loving, kind, courteous, meeting people at their conscious need. Then when they ask, what do you do when they ask? Just give them the works, give them three books, 17 correspondence courses, and 55 pieces of literature. No, no. No, no. Give them just a very minimal amount. A minimal amount. Not a great big book. A little tiny book. Not three or four correspondence courses. Just one little piece of literature as they want it. And you'll be surprised what can happen to that wife of yours as you continue to pray. Pray mostly for yourself. Pray that we won't feel that unless we tell her we're going to fly. My friends, it's a lot better for the Holy Spirit to take over now, right? Thank you. When I was growing up, as a child, I went to Sunday school and was baptized. Now I have discovered Jesus in a deeper way and have found the truth of his holy Sabbath day. Is it right in God's eyes for me to be baptized into the Sabbath-keeping church? It is perfectly right for you to be baptized. Acts chapter 19 tells of a group of people who had received some truth in Jesus. And then the apostle Paul came along and his associates and gave them more light. Then they were baptized again. But as you're baptized, you're not baptized into a denomination. You're baptized into Jesus, who is the truth. Nobody is baptized in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're baptized into Jesus, and he is the truth. So though you were once baptized into Jesus, these dear people had the right sense, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They had the right to be baptized in symbol of a deeper, far deeper experience in Jesus, which realizes that we've been ignorantly breaking one of his Ten Commandments, and we're sorry for it. And this is our witness to the world that we're walking in a beautiful, new, gleaming, glorious light. In this hour, we've got several questions uh, on dress. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22, 5, this questioner notes that uh, it says, A woman shall not wear an article proper to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's dress. What do you think of that? I like it. 
<laughs> what do you think of it? <laughs> I like it. But you know, friends, when we study the Bible, we shouldn't study it just superficially. We should be very careful and prayerful and ask the Lord what it means. You'd be surprised how many questions like that have come to us through the years. People have said, do you know a lady wearing slacks? That's terrible. They said, she's wearing that which pertains to a man. And we've said, did you know when God gave that commandment in Deuteronomy, did you know all the men were wearing dresses, <laughs> robes, Men and women alike, all were wearing that. How about that? How about that? And now women wear slacks and men, men wear pants, and we get all excited over it. <laughs> so what in the world was he talking about? Without a doubt, he was talking about that type of dress which would give the beholder the impression that this person was out to capture either members of its, their own sex or others. Never forget, they're all wearing dresses. Have you ever noticed it? Look at the pictures. Look at the robes. Look at the dresses. It's not that. It's not that. It goes far more deeply than that. It goes to the question of what it's all about. So let us be very careful not to criticize others' clothing. Amen? And there's another reason why, too. If you and I were perfectly right in our concepts of how others should dress, we still don't have a right to be conscious for them. Second Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, my conscience was given me of the Lord only for Glenn Kuhn. My conscience was never given me to control Steve Marshall. Amen. <laughs> and there are thousands of others who can say amen too. <laughs> amen? Amen. amen? Amen. See, it's just like a person who has a, a, a car, a Volkswagen car. Did you know the motor in a Volkswagen car was never made to handle a Volkswagen car and a Cadillac? So our conscience is made just for us. And when we start to be, follow me carefully, when we start to be conscious for somebody else, do you know what's going to happen according to God's word? Listen attentively, write it down on your wrist or, or on, on your hand somewhere, write it. And when you get home, put it in your Bible. Or now, here it is, Ecclesiastes 7.16. Listen to this. Here's what it says. Be not righteous over much. Neither make thou thyself over much wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? What does it mean to be righteous over much? We're told to be righteous, but we're not to be righteous over much. What is the difference between being righteous and being righteous over much? What is the difference between being wise and over much wise? To be righteous over much means that I am conscience for somebody else. 
To be overmuch wise means that I think I know what the other person should do. I don't know what the other person should do. I don't know how far he's grown in grace. Amen? And more than this, let's follow this carefully. If somebody else adjusts his behavior on the basis of my conscience, what reward will he get? If he goes through any external obedience to please me, what am I depriving him of? I'm depriving him of the basic choice. And this basic choice is the thing that drinks into the love of God. And if a man goes through all of the externals and his heart isn't in it and he does it because somebody else's conscience says it, will he get any reward from the Lord? None at all. So instead of that, let's deal with righteousness by faith. Let's so present the beauties of Jesus and our total trust in Jesus and the happiness that Jesus has given us in, the, in spite of all the temptations and trials so that our, our friends will say, my, I admire the Christ I see in that person. And by beholding, they're changed in the same image, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Try it, friends. It will pay. Why doesn't God answer many of my prayers that I feel are so important? That's a good, 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 good question. Let me give you a little, uh, what do I call it, a motto? It is this. God will always give every believing child of his exactly what that child asks every time or something better. This has to be so because of Calvary. God already did his sacrifice on Calvary, right? He gave his only begotten son. This shows that God is so interested in me that rather than for me to die eternally, he let his son die the eternal death, the second death. It means that he who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? All right, next is this. Some people have come to us, many people, and they said, look, uh, I've understood for years that God sometimes says yes, he sometimes says wait, and he sometimes says no. And we say, well, that's interesting. And this is what it really is. God sometimes says yes. God sometimes says wait. Follow me. But God never says to his believing child, he never says no, period. He does sometimes say to his believing child, no, comma. What is the difference between a comma in punctuation and a period in punctuation? The period is the end of the sentence. <clears throat> the comma means there's something more to follow. Never once in all human experience has God ever said to his believing child, no, period. He'll always give us what we ask for or something better. Aren't you thankful for that? Amen. We could give you experience after experience after experience. Now, closely associated with that, and you can be free to put a question in again in another session. Closely associated with that are two texts of Scripture which we need to study carefully. One is Isaiah 42, 16. It says, I'll bring the blind by way that they knew not. I'll lead them in paths they've not known. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, I'll do it in a way you don't know. In other words, because God answers us in a different way than our limited understanding, 
is capable of understanding, we think he said no. He hasn't said any such thing. The farm that we had a marvelous series of miracles in obtaining that $6,000 answer to prayer and all of that, when we found that we we're being transferred, we prayed for 12 years straight that that farm would be sold. When it sold, it was as clear as blazing daylight why God had not sold it 12 years before. And if you'd like to know, you can put that question in at one of our sessions. Here's a prayer request, and this will just close out our session together nicely. Please pray for my physical problems, severe headaches and migraines. I have to take so much medication it costs $150 a month. Also, please pray for one teenager who has gone far astray. And there are probably many just like that. Right, right. And uh, also a very, very important letter came in about what to do for a child who has a severe mental disability. And in our next session, we want to deal with what to do in this case. Shall we pray together? Dear Lord, you've said in Psalm 107, 20, that you sent your word and healed. Thank you, Lord, there's healing in your word. Oh, Father, we ask believingly that we may learn the simple conditions to healing. For we believe, oh, Lord, in thy tremendous, beautiful, eager healing love, healing power. Thank you, Lord, for the answers which we are receiving as we learn how to comply with the conditions by your grace. In the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.